Dr. Ryan Stanton here with ASAP Frontline, um, again at Leadership and Advocacy 2017, now with uh, Dr. Chad Kessler, who is an emergency physician and um, interestingly found out that as of uh, last year was the um, Interim Director for Emergency Services for the Veterans Administration, and now that is a permanent uh, role. So congratulations on passing the uh, the interim phase and making it to uh, to the permanent phase. And today we're going to talk about uh, leadership under fire in, in times of crisis. Um, so uh, thank you for joining me. Tell me uh, a little bit more about yourself, uh, practice, and then how we got into this particular topic. Appreciate it, Ryan. Um, yeah. Okay, great. So, um, well, I trained in emergency medicine and internal medicine, so it was a good fit for the VA back in the day when I started, because at first they were a little hesitant to, I think, accept any emergency medicine physicians. In both Chicago when I started and then Durham when I moved, I was the first emergency trained physician. And I think having that background in internal medicine or emergency medicine really helped, as I think it still does today, shape what we do in emergency medicine, because although we have 130-plus emergency departments across the country, they are heavily focused on internal medicine. There's not much trauma, not much peds, limited OB and GYN. So it was a very good fit. And how we got here today was uh, with the help of Rob Strauss overseeing this panel that we're going to talk about leadership under fire and really crisis, which is that duality of opportunity and danger coming together. And that's really what it is. So every crisis with that danger really becomes an opportunity. And uh, what we're going to talk about is how we can capture those opportunities and something to take home for the audience. All right. So get us started into that, um, into the topic, uh, dig a little bit deeper into that leadership in crisis, um, some of the things you're going to focus on um, and give us an idea. Uh, and then we'll roll from there in terms of some of the opportunities, challenges that our emergency physicians will face. Great. So, yeah, uh, in terms of the VA, I think uh, often it's a crisis. So it's challenging when your board of directors is Congress or the American people. And that's, that's what organization we're in. So I personally am in Durham, North Carolina. We sit on the campus with Duke. UNC is nine miles away. And when something happens uh, negatively in, in healthcare, in our healthcare system that is enormous and serves over 60,000 veterans, it ends up in the front page of the papers. When this happens at Duke or UNC, you don't see about it, you don't hear about it. The VA system is a very transparent organization. I think that's great. Um, however, as we know in media, social media now these days, print, um, TV, uh, you have anything with veterans and anything goes, goes wrong in terms of a wait time or a veteran didn't get good care or they're angry, it's a very emotion-jarring response and that's why the media plays with it, it's something that plays. And so we see a lot of it uh, over time. And a few years ago, we came to a head in a crisis out in Phoenix when there were wait times in the VA and it got all over the paper and it was very big congressional inquiries. And so that's sort of how we're gonna talk about, about this is a crisis that happened and how would you handle it? And what, what did we do? What would other people do? And how we can learn from going back to your shop, your department? That is a huge challenge. Um, we've had, I've seen it in the past where you have the patient or the family member who's upset at care. And so they're outside the hospital with the news media talking about the hospital um, disparagingly. And, and, you know, we as healthcare are very limited in terms of a lot of what we can do because of 
the privacy, HIPAA, that sort of thing. We can't really come back and fight and say this is really what happened because we have to protect that privacy. How do we, whether it's community, whether it's community or the government-based VA hospitals, how do we address and deal with um, deal with that sort of uh, a public uprising or an issue that hits the that hits the front pages of the paper? It's a great question, and it's something we deal with all the time because you never can tell your side of the story. So somebody might come in, they got bad care, someone took a video of someone lying on the floor, Mm -hmm. when in reality that patient wanted to be on the floor because they couldn't find any space, and someone tried to bring a stretcher three times in a blanket, and they wanted to be on the floor. Yet that picture of of Joe Patient lying on the floor at your local ED gets in the news, and now you're being asked about why your care is so poor, and you're having patients sit on the floor and wait times and this and that. And you can never tell that story. We in the VA actually, I think, have um, a good things in our something in our pockets that that anyone could do. But we have veteran service organizations, and so places like the American Legion that can help tell the veterans tell their story when we can't. Just like you said, for privacy, respect, and sometimes it looks like you're just fighting back, and the media just attacks you again. But you want these patients, whether veterans or not, to tell their story. And I also think we need to be very proactive in terms of the VA and maybe, again, across the board. Oftentimes we're very reactive. We wait for something bad to happen and then it comes up. Instead of going to the local media um, outlet in Fox News in your area in Durham, North Carolina, and making friends with the manager on there and start a good relationship so when things come up they can talk and you can see what the reality is you get more of a fair spin on the news and even pro pro stories there's so many good stories we do every day about saving lives saving children whether it's veterans and so we need to be more proactive get the name out there so it's not just every time you hear us it's it's negative whether again VA or another emergency department I think healthcare struggles with that, though, and that was the one of the issues I had when I was doing media with the hospital I was with before. Um, was everything was positive, but they weren't comfortable with the with that kind of proactive. I've always I've felt like healthcare struggles with that getting out a positive measure uh, message. It always is that reaction to the bad stuff that hits. Um, you know, whatever hits the paper or, or the inquiries, and that is something that's always missing in those just context in many cases of what we're dealing with. So how as leaders in emergency medicine do we help deal with, um, help take that issue or, or ward off those issues or answer to those, whether it's the administration coming down and asking us questions or the media or the public or whoever it may be. I mean, I think one of the most, the biggest challenges for us is administration because they, even, even they being in healthcare, a lot of times don't understand the context, um, especially in, in uh, community-based medicine and private hospitals where um, very much they're driving on image. Yeah, I I think it's a change in perception and a change of culture too. Uh, old generation, old business school in the in the sixties and seventies was, you don't share too much. You know, the C suite goes up to the room, they say hi, good morning, and they close the door, and that's about all you know. And I know we're changing locally in Durham, and I and I hope around the country in VA and non VA to be more open and more transparent and share stories, share your own story. And if it means going out and, and talking to these people and having lunch to set up these relationships, then all the better. Because when they don't know you, it's gonna be very a polar opposite conversation. They're not gonna be <coughs> coming out and these good people, they're, they're, they're starting from the best, we assume in healthcare, whether it's simulation and training, or in practice, 
that everyone's coming from that good angle. If you're trying to help somebody or you're doing from good, but that media relationship, I don't, I don't think is like that at start. So when you go out and you form bonds with these people and you know reporters and they know what you're doing and you invite them in, we've invited them in for open days. Come on in, see what we're doing, talk, ask questions, get ahead of it. So if you wait for something that hits social media to come out and then be blasted by these news reporters, it's gonna be bad. But if you're proactive, which is very difficult because you know you're gonna take it, you know you're going to take it and you think oh maybe it'll escape maybe it won't come but you go up and you have a press conference and you come in and you say this is what happened this is where we are someone's here you engage your partners and so we had the American Legion standing right next to, to us in that instance um, I think we'll all be better off so I'd be more open more sharing you've uh, you're also talking about not just image related crisis you're also talking about uh, uh, mass casualties or disaster type situations. Tell us more about that from the leadership standpoint. Again, it it's all comes down to communication and everything's about people. So getting everybody on board, working together, having a good solid plan like we do as emergency physicians, working with EMS and local, but it's tying everybody in. I think the biggest mistake we make is when you try to go out on an island or rush to take action when you don't have everybody on board and taking some time just to think and check your own pulse and then reach out uh, is, is the best way to go on it. And you'll hear a lot of it more from Kathy Clem when we talk about that, about how they reacted and what they did at different events across the country as we've seen more and more. And these things will, will, will rise up again. One of the keys for emergency medicine when it comes to, I mean, we, we are the front line um, and we are going to be the ones that are going to feel the uh, mass casualty situation. I mean, some of us, many, will never have a mass casualty situation. I mean, other than like a large uh, set, a car wreck, a bus, something like that. But very few are going to have this, the interaction, such as the the um, Boston Marathon bombing or 9/11. And yet, many or some will have that. And luckily most won't have a second and so it's all about being prepared for the potential of that one and only mass casualty disaster situation in your area how do we as leaders prepare an emergency room uh, prepare our particular shops for a situation that may never happen that's a great question we we balance that between how much money you spend on simulation and planning and training and drills, and you can drill out to Wazoo. It doesn't mean that when the event actually happens that anyone's going to be any better. So, of course, we should be you know, pre-planned and ready and, and things to go. But at the end of the day, again, I think it comes down to whoever is on, because it might be Sunday morning at 3 a.m., you know, nightclub in Orlando. I, you know, everyone needs to be prepared, and, and you need to be able to pull in other people and, and not be afraid to say, I don't know what to do. Let's call someone. Let's grab this other person. And I think if people are more open and less stuck on their own ego, say, I got this, we do this, that's when, when you get trouble because you'll forget something. This is an emergent, crazy situation. And so reach out and activate that plan you know, you look at flights when, when flights go wrong and, and a plane is crashing, they literally pull out a handbook and follow it in an emergency. You know, we, we don't typically do that when a patient's crashing in front of us is pull out our ACLS book that we all have, but we don't pull it out. Why not? Because we think we're too smart, whatever. You know, I think, again, just open and free communication. If we try to sit there and just do work and someone's talking, you say, not right now and push them away and push this away. 
you're sitting on the train and the train stops. It, it stopped this morning. And you get frustrated when you don't know. So when that person comes on the intercom and says, we have a train up, they're fixing the door, it should be about two minutes, you feel good. Or the pilot when you're sitting on the tarmac and they're de-icing. The more communication that you know what's going on when you're talking to patients, families, your administration, the better. I think oftentimes we don't talk enough because we're scared or we feel bad or intimidated. Things that when we were kids and all you see, I have little kids, I have four little kids, they speak what's on their mind. And some point in time, they learn not to because they feel like they're going to fail or they feel that make, someone's going to make fun of them. It's the same thing, I think, as adults, but it's even a bigger shell. And so when we shed that shell and do better, that's when we can open up and I think we'll do a much better job. Communication is huge. I, you know, I went to, I was down in Dallas uh, last summer, about a week after the, um, the police shooting down there, and, and went and talked to the trauma and emergency services at Parkland. And, you know, to them, the way they responded was incredible. I mean, it sounds like the, the Boston Marathon was very similar. The response from emergency service, frontline physicians, EMS, was right on point. Um, that, you know, they, folks coming in, communication, you know, main, maintaining as much business as usual, but then setting setting things aside. You know, and I, I think one of the largest things to do is understanding your potential risks. Now, there's a lot of things we can't predict. We can't predict nightclub shootings. I mean, everybody's got nightclubs. We can't predict shootings uh, like that. But understanding your potential risks. So, me in Kentucky, you know, the risk is probably going to be uh, tornadoes and severe weather and wind and thunderstorm related events like that. Um, whereas down south uh, on the Gulf Coast, you always need to be ready for the hurricanes, um, Great Plains, tornadoes. Uh, up here in the northeast, you're going to be talking about uh, snowstorms, snow events, occasionally, um, you know, hurricane-type events. So, um, you know, I think that's a huge thing is understanding your potential risks and preparing for them. One thing that we do in Lexington is the annual CSEP drill because we have a chemical weapon stockpile 15 miles down the road in Richmond, uh, Kentucky. And so every year we practice just like it's been released. I mean, one of those bombs goes off or something happens and all of a sudden we've got mustard gas everywhere, VX, sarin, whatever it is. Um, and that practicing is there. Um, but I think that's hard because the, that's one of the challenges we face in disaster medicine preparedness is the practice is never like the real thing. There's never the emotions that are there. There's never that, you know, that that, you know, that the the mental G lock that you get from um, from being in a super stressful situation. Can you handle it and continue to function um, like you are now? And that's exactly what you're talking about with the airlines with the checklist. They're removing that mental G lock that that you know that that inability to function meant because of the acute stress by saying I don't want you to remember that I want you to read that and go through a checklist and that's something that's huge in medicine that we don't do near enough is rely on our resources that says this is super stressful and we don't expect you to remember the answer all the time so here's the resource to do it not only that I mean I think we even do one worse if you will so we, we don't open it up. Think about a code. That's probably the most stressful usual situation we deal with all the time. And one person leads that code. And if something else goes wrong, it's still taboo for someone else to speak up and say, no, what about this? And, and why can't a nurse say, did you think about this? Or what about this medicine? Or did you call this person? 
because you know this is the king and the, and that's the person that's seeing over. I really hope that we are moving away from that, and I think we are in general and generation. But some of that still exists, and I think that's why we've been stuck so long at one point and haven't risen up, risen up like many other specialties or not specialties, many many other things outside of medicine look outside of medicine and people are, are way beyond and I think so so much we just have this cap on saying we are it we're not going to listen to anyone else and as soon as we start to listen to somebody else and collaborate and partner more we'll be so much better off kind of spinning off a little bit from uh, from this um, crisis idea um, your role with emergency medicine with the with the Veterans Administration and then I think it's an interesting shift you mentioned that you were the uh, internal medicine emergency medicine cross-trained and that gave you a leg up our local VA um, just within the last five to five to seven years has been their first time to have emergency boarded physicians in their emergency department where do you see the future of emergency medicine with the Veterans Administration and what are the challenges we're going to be facing moving forward? Great stuff, great stuff. So when I, when I um, took on this job, I had some ideas about where we wanted to go and a lot of big plans because emergency medicine in the VA is only about 15 or 16 years old. That's it, when it first started. And again, we're relatively young, especially emergency physicians in general, but even newer in, uh, in VA. And I remember um, when I started in VA, and again, this was in Chicago before I was director. I was a resident, and, and we'd go and we'd see these these uh, these EDs, or at least the one in Chicago. And it wasn't anything like what it looks like today, and nothing that I thought was really uh, in the best interest of the veteran. So we've made a lot of changes, and we sort of put together a strategic plan based on multiple different pillars. And one, as we talked about, is um, advocacy. We've been working with ASEP a lot, people like Gordon Wheeler and Brad Gruen, um, to educate our congressional partners. And we've made legislative changes to talk about flexibility. We have a flexibility bill that just passed before the last Congress finished, which is terrific. Gives VA um, physicians a little bit more flexibility in terms of their hours. Everyone is on an 80-hour uh, pay period or, or work week, 40 hours in a week, 80 in that thing. And there really wasn't much flexibility there. This new flexibility passed um, will allow people to practice emergency medicine or hospital medicine or a lot of different other specialties that isn't that typical nine to five day or seven to three thirty day. So that's one. Um, education is another. We're partnering with uh, many academic institutions, like VA has done for a while with medicine or surgery, to have people come over and residents and fellows. And in emergency medicine, it was a very limited number. It was seven, I think, when I came in. We've now up to 20, and it should be 80 or 90. Every place that has, like in Lexington, you know, a place right across the street, there should be some collaboration or affiliation, whether it's with faculty, residents, fellows. The VA has a ton of research opportunities and dollars. We have GME-funded spots that no one else in the country has right now and then we talked about research so we partnered with our HSRD health service and um, research folks to put on a field-based conference that's going to lead into a state-of-the-art conference we have people coming from around the country partnering with people like EMF and ASAP on building these different programs possibly even a research fellowship that would be collaborative so 
these are just some of the things. We've increased the pay tables. That was sort of a baseline that you just needed to get up there even to be able to compete. And so a lot of these things that they said, well, this is why it will never work, um, we're changing. And we're, we're getting to the place where we can compete uh, in terms of salary, in terms of hours, and in terms of practice. That's that last one, policy, making sure that emergency physicians don't have any problem intubating or doing moderate sedation or anything else. And we're fighting the good battle to make sure people don't have to carry around merit badges and have to do any special extra training that they've done already to do ultrasound or, or intubation. So we're getting there in a very short time. We've seen a big change, and I think in five years we probably won't recognize what VA emergency medicine looks like. It'll look so much like community and academia. What are the challenges we're facing moving forward? So I think the challenges are still with that um, older generation and, and people and the folks that are there. And we are in no point to have all emergency medicine boarded physicians at this time, much like the country is not. There's not enough emergency physicians. We are like to head in that direction, certainly having the leaders of all these departments be emergency medicine board certified. But at the same time, we're still working with a lot of internists and family practitioners, and which is great because, again, as long as there's a good balance there, and typically, you know, if you can have an emergency medicine boarded person on as well as an internal medicine folks, some of these places, it works, it works quite well. I think a lot of the administrations um, still struggle with understanding the value of emergency medicine and why we now want to pay these people $300,000 a year, which is very unique, you know, in the VA and then and, and change from what we could. We are our previous top salary, no matter where you are in the country, was $240,000. That was it. These new pay tables, now the top level is $348,000. It doesn't mean that people are getting that, but it does mean that we have the ability to pay if that local system has trouble recruiting or, or needs to pay. We couldn't even do that before. And again, it's a very governmental, bureaucratic um, organization. No one can make more than president, so no one can make more than $400,000. We're talking about up to three forty eight dollars for an emergency physician. You can imagine for a neurosurgeon how difficult it is to find these people. People, right it's a real challenge so I think it takes two things to um, lead a successful department uh, in the VA and something that I've done in Chicago and now in Durham and I see it across the country you need a passionate leader about emergency medicine that really wants to make emergency medicine better for the veterans in that area and I think that's you, you find a lot of that we have a lot of people here we look around and there's whatever 700 people here at, at LAC now the second thing though and as important is you need a leader, a chief of staff, a director, CEO, that will support that person on the department. And without those two things, you're not going to succeed. Because you can have somebody who's really passionate in emergency medicine. They want to do all these right things and want to get ultrasound and push the practice and get good people. But if you don't have somebody upstairs in C-suite supporting them, it's going to fail. And, and much like if you have good, great support up top, this is, this is rarer, but then, you know, not, a, not an emergency physician who really has any leadership or just wants to sit or the university maybe is sending over their retired person, um, it's, it's going to fail as well. You need both of those things. And we've seen it succeed. You know, I can only give my local example, but we have two Duke residents now a year come over, walking on fellowships, our department. I would put up against anybody. I mean, for what we do, and again, we don't see peds and trauma, but for what we do, we do it just as good as anybody else. The thing is, though, you're going to start seeing that huge shift with the increasing role of, of women uh, in combat and, and that sort. I mean, your, your patient population is changing, and so you are going to have um, pregnancy and GYN-related issues, maybe not you know straight-up peds, but you know, at the same time, the patient population is changing. And how are the challenges in a shifting, I mean, more than anywhere else, you know, the, the emergency medicine in the public 
you know, from a public layperson standpoint, it doesn't change much. We're getting some now growth within the aging baby boomers, but the VA is completely a different bear. I mean, the picture is completely different. You know, we've, we're losing, you know, we've almost lost all of the, the, the World War II based veterans, the Korea veterans. And so now the the uh, Vietnam is, is our oldest, our older generation that still has large numbers, and then as well as all the Gulf and Middle Eastern, uh, Middle East conflicts, and all those changes. How is that? How is the practice of VA emergency medicine changing with the changing demographics of the patient population? Yeah, it's a great question because uh, it really is changing, and what used to be the typically mid-60s African-American veteran who comes into our inner city uh, EDs is, is very much changing um, because we have a younger generation coming in with OAF, OEF um, veterans, and like you said, um, many more women. And these people want something different. Um, so where it used to be, I think an older generation, older school, you want that continuity, you want that primary care provider, and you'll wait and you'll you know see them and you know try to make an appointment. Uh, very much a new generation is about access. They want to come in and get seen right now. And honestly, I don't care who I see. And so we're seeing those younger veterans who will utilize the ED because, heck, we're efficient, right? We can see them quickly. We can get all their tests done. We can find an answer and get them back on their way. So we do see a lot of people using the ED. The VA is taking huge strides in terms of access to primary care. And our new secretary, who was our undersecretary, David Shulkin, um, is just taking on incredible things to try to turn around where we are and open up same-day access to every veteran in primary care. And they're doing really great. And so how that affect emergency medicine, we'll still to see. Um, in theory, you would think as people have more access to their primary care and other providers that those folks that were using the ED as primary care would lessen, but we haven't seen that. And I don't think we've seen that across the nation anywhere when people try new programs to decrease and say the ED utilization will fall. It never does. It never does. And so I think we're going to keep seeing more and more. Now, the VA is unique because it grows in certain areas. The Southeast, as you mentioned before, um, is growing quite heavily. And so down in Florida, the Carolinas, a lot of military bases, people retire down there. In the Northeast, traditional population is, is falling a lot. And also a population of inpatients. If you look at the grand scale and project out 2020 and 2025, our inpatient is about the same, if not falling. Outpatient growth is rising steadily. And with that, you'll see a, a huge growth of emergency, uh, emergency medicine. So we will have to shift. All right. So if people want more information, how they get in touch with you via... Email, contact, social media, whatnot. Yeah, well, email is the best. It's just real simple, chad.kessler, C-H-A-D dot K-E-S-S-L-E-R at va.gov. About as easy as it gets. All right, thank you so much. And as for us, you can contact, uh, like our page on Facebook, the ASAP Frontline page, also on Twitter, at EverydayMed. You can also feel free to contact me at any point, any questions, suggestions, thoughts, uh, generalized rants or ravings. Um, at youreverydaymedicine@gmail.com, at youreverydaymedicine@gmail.com. Uh, Dr. Kessler, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ryan. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been ASEP Frontline. Frontline.